Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> This show was first broadcast on the 11th of February, 2019. Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we plant the seeds of weird and wonderful science directly into your fertile imagination. I'm Ian Wolfe. This week, listen to the conclusion of Nathan Waters' talk about the future of human needs, where he focuses on work and housing. First up, here's news of the Little Ice Age and its reported return. Is the sun about to cool the earth? The same people who told us that there's no global warming, then that all global warming is only caused by the sun, are now writing that the sun is about to conveniently cool the earth any day now. Since 2013, and every year since, the story keeps on coming back to newspapers and blogs, then spread around social media. That the Monde Minimum, a time of exceptionally few sunspots, caused the world to suffer the Little Ice Age for hundreds of years, and it will happen again in 2020, so that the Earth will cool down instead of warming. It's a myth. The Little Ice Age started 350 years before there were fewer sunspots, and went for another 135 years after the sunspot observations returned to the sun's 11-year sunspot cycle. While sunspots won't save us from climate change, the sun certainly can. Fortunately, solar, wind and storage are getting cheaper and more powerful every year, while coal, oil, gas and nuclear are not. During real ice ages, the temperature was 4 to 8 degrees Celsius cooler than modern times, for periods of about 20,000 years. We can tell the temperatures of distant times by analysing polar ice cores and comparing the ratio of heavy isotopes of hydrogen and oxygen to light ones, because the heavy isotopes take longer to evaporate from the ocean. The Little Ice Age refers to a period from 1300 to 1850 Common Era, when it was half a degree Celsius colder than temperatures in the early 20th century. In 1608, there was a frost fair on the frozen Thames, celebrated in a famous illustration. In Britain during the Little Ice Age, the Thames River froze over in 1564 and Queen Elizabeth I walked on the ice. In some stories, she practised archery on the ice. The next year, there was a frost fair on the frozen Thames, celebrated in a famous illustration. In 1658, the Baltic Sea froze to such an extent that a Swedish army was able to invade Denmark by marching across the sea ice. A paper published in the journal Astronomy and Geophysics in 2017, titled Frost Fairs, Sunspots and the Little Ice Age, by a team led by the University of Reading physicist and solar expert Mike Lockwood, go into the matter more deeply. 
They say it shouldn't even be called a little ice age because the reduction in temperature is so small. For comparison, temperatures have risen by one full degree Celsius over the past 120 years and 0.7 degrees Celsius over just the past 40 years. The last glacial minimum had Britain suffering minus 30 degrees Celsius in winter and a maximum of 8 degrees in summer. The evidence is that all humans left Britain for warmer places in the last ice age. 500 years of half a degree cooler is nowhere near so bad. Several causes of the Little Ice Age have been proposed, including lows in solar radiation, heightened volcanic activity, changes in ocean circulation, the inherent internal variability in global climate, and increased human populations at high latitudes, cutting down a very large number of trees. The team from the University of Reading point out that evidence from plant samples shows that the period of cooling really began in 1430 which corresponds to an increase in activity from a large volcano on an island near Indonesia. The lowest temperatures in the Little Ice Age were between 1570 and 1730, during a period of almost continuous but smaller volcanic activity. Volcanoes might cool the warming world in the future, but you don't want to be in the path of the lava, get a respiratory illness, or need to fly anywhere. And they're not easy to predict or control. In 1887, Gustav Sporer published a paper showing that for 130 years between 1645 to 1715, there were very few sunspots, and at times, none at all. In 1894, husband and wife astronomers Walter and Annie Maunder confirmed the work of Sporer to the Royal Astronomical Society. As a result of their paper, this period became known as the Maunder Minimum. When you compare the solar activity estimated from carbon-14 in tree rings from this time to the temperatures, sometimes they match up, and sometimes they head in opposite directions. It is true that the lowest temperatures of the 500-year Little Ice Age occurred during the 130-year Maunder Minimum, which has helped make the two periods seem to be identical, when they're not. The University of Reading team looked into the history of the Thames freezing over and found that this event is reported as happening many times, from 250 onwards to 1789, but there were frost fairs reported for only a handful of them. Will the sun next year go into another grand minimum of sunspot activity like the Maunder Minimum? It's possible, but the recent quiet sun is exactly what we expect during the solar minimum part of the 11-year sunspot cycle. The sun cycles from maximum activity to minimum activity. If the sun did go into a grand minimum, would it cool the Earth? Astronomers from the University of California, San Diego, have calculated from observing 33 other sun-like stars that if the sun did go into a grand minimum of sunspot activity, that at best we would get a temporary reduction of 7% less sunlight, which would cool us by 0.3 degrees Celsius. At a time when humans are raising the temperature by 0.2 degrees Celsius every 10 years, the cooling from 7% less bright sunlight during less sunspot activity would barely make a dent in human-caused warming. 
They ran a computer simulation of a grand minimum lasting 50 years, between 2020 and 2070, factoring in the rate of human-caused global warming, and found that it barely slowed things at first, and by the end, the world was just as hot as if the grand minimum had never happened. Their paper is called Ultraviolet Flux Decrease Under a Grand Minimum from IUE Short Wavelength Observation of Solar Analogues, and was published in Astrophysical Journal Letters in 2017. In a game of broken telephone, various writers around the net have heard what they want to hear and miscommunicated this research to instead claim that a grand minimum is definitely starting in 2020 and will definitely last 50 years and will definitely cool the world and stave off global warming, none of which is true. Some of the articles talk about the fall in sunspot numbers in 2018 being earlier than expected, but the pages they link to as evidence, while authoritative, were written in 2014. 2018 was the world's hottest year on record for the fifth year in a row, so the global cooling either hasn't kicked in yet or human-caused warming has overwhelmed it. We can't count on the sun going into a grand minimum to save us with global cooling, both because the effect is so small and because it would only be temporary. Our only choice is to switch over to renewable energy and stop causing catastrophic climate change. And now here's They Might Be Giants with an old 1950 song, Why Does the Sun Shine? Followed by their own song, Why Does the Sun Really Shine? Which is updated with a modern scientific understanding of how the sun shines. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas, gigantic nuclear furnace, where hydrogen is built into helium at a temperature of billions of degrees. and carbon, anger and adultery, Roosevelt Franklin, old typewriters, and bologna sandwiches. The sun is a massive incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear forest, where 
Listen to more of They Might Be Giants on their website, www.tmbg.com. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now the conclusion of the future of work and housing. Nathan Waters is an entrepreneur and futurist who spoke at Transhuman Australia about the future of human needs. Nathan used a little adult language, which I've bleeped for the community radio broadcast. I'm really big into like the idea of uh, blockchain and decentralisation. I was mining bitcoins back in 2009 and started the Sydney Ethereum meetup in 2014. But now I'm kind of like turning against it, which is interesting. I think... Decentralization of technology is definitely good, but decentralization right now almost looks like a bit of a neoliberal type agenda, where it's like, cool, if we decentralize markets and the governments can't touch it, then those who have capital, the rich, can dominate those markets. And that's what happens. You look at Bitcoin, you look at Ethereum, the thing called the Gini coefficient, the wealth inequality measure, it's worse in Bitcoin and Ethereum than it is in North Korea. <laughs> There's just massive wealth inequality. And I just worked for a big crypto company and they're just trying to centralize everything billionaire fired me. Read some marks. There's some pretty good learnings. Yes, some of it's not relevant today because he wrote it 150 years ago, but there's some really good learnings. So what I think a better mission would be, a better kind of purpose would be looking to decoupling these things. So decoupling these power relations and then use decentralization as kind of a medium to enable that. So things like decentralizing <laughs> the landlord from the tenant. These are, these are class power relations. You know, why is it that we have to pay exorbitant rent that goes up every year to some guy whose name just happens to be on the register for owning it? It's, it's stupid. And so the way we can do this, and again, these ideas are kind of a little bit weird. Government could fix our housing affordability issue quite easily if they wanted to. But in Australia, an interesting one that I love saying is they commissioned a housing affordability committee. They spent two years looking at housing affordability and they came back with zero recommendations. <laughs> so government could fix it, but they have no intention to. So I love this idea of like driverless van homes. So initially starting with vans, so there's a lot of people who already live in vans. It's van life, if you look that up online, van dwellers. And this sounds like, at the moment, it's kind of countercultural, carbon bordering on hippie type thing. But I think it's, if you can actually make it more accessible and enable people to kind of start renting a van quite cheaply, like at a lower cost than they pay for a shared room. In Sydney, a shared room in a, in a, in a shared house where it's like, you know, average of 250 bucks a week. So imagine if you could start offering that or less and get it down to 50 bucks per week to basically move into a van and live in a van. And then when vans become driverless, that's really cool. You basically, you know, you could go outside now and just tap a button and your house picks you up. And then go even further and say, well, okay, well, 
once you have driverless and it's safe, they're just driverless rooms. And so then you can stack them together. You could have a 20-foot kind of shipping container that's kind of a room that you own. And then when you dock, it docks to another living room and then opens up into a bigger space. And then it kind of docks vertically. And that way you could have on-demand, you know, if you want a kitchen, you just say, bring me the kitchen and it and docks with you. Rather than at the moment we have, your kitchen sits there empty most of the time. Your bathroom sits there empty most of the time. It's kind of a waste of footprint. And the cool thing about this is if you can decouple land from housing and you make these vans kind of ideally ownerless or owned by the commons but still under the stewardship of an individual, then you crash the whole market because you, you remove the speculation from it. So again, another power class power struggle. So if you could decouple the employer from the employee, what would that look like? So imagine if you could make every single person a freelancer but without having to wear all the different hats that you have to wear as a freelancer, like you have to be a marketer and a salesperson and a networker, and it's, it's risky. What if you just had an, an option where you level up, you quantify what you're good at, what you're interested in, and then jobs, just high paying jobs, not like $1 per hour or do this task for $1. It's like, no, high quality, high end projects that you're really, really passionate about that just get matched to you. So imagine you're in like a Reddit feed or a Facebook feed with all the other interest groups that you're interested in, you're learning from each other, and then just occasionally it'll just match a, a project to you and say, hey, like, do you want to take this? It's like 500 bucks if you do it now or whatever. I think that's awesome. That's how you kind of decouple employer from employee. And so this is periodism. This is basically like if you can quantify people's skill sets, then you can understand what they're good at, but also what they're interested in, what they're passionate about, and then use that to kind of auto-match things to people and optimize it. Decouple capital from labor. So mutual credits. So if you've ever looked into the idea of mutual credit systems, so a lot of these tend to be like very low, small community type things where you'd say, so there's one called Let's, which is pretty popular, where you'd say, okay, I'm good at, say, repairing computers or whatever, so I'll offer an hour of my time to repair your computer, and then you know, that way I get an hour of credit, which I can then use to pay someone to babysit my kids or something like that. That's usually the thing. But if you scale it up to a kind of more global set up, then you can just have this system where anyone can hire each other without needing money. One of the big reasons why I think employers tend to win out is because they have the capital to hire us. I mean, you know, workers don't have money to hire each other. <laughs> they don't just have stuff lying around excess. So you could have a system where if you want to hire someone to do anything for you, and that could even be as simple as like helping you out with something or, or whatever, like literally whatever you want. You could just put a request out, it gets matched to someone, same thing, shows up in their feed, they do it for you, you just go into debit and they go into credit. This would be a market-based system where it's like, hey, I'm willing to pay someone 100 bucks to do this thing for me. And then all you, you don't need that 100 bucks, you just go into debit and then debit credit. And the cool thing about this as well is like, it almost becomes, like at scale, you can think about it, it almost becomes a bit of a UBI. Like rather than having to just give out money to everyone, you could have this system where you just go into debit when you need to. And that way, you, you don't go into debit to individuals, you go into debit to the, the network or the, the economy itself. And so that way, no one really has power over each other. But yeah, I'm still trying to work this one out. Yeah, I mean, you search mutual credit, crypto, crypto economics, and it's just nothing comes up. No one's talking about it. They're all talking about tokenization. And I think tokenization is really heading down a bad direction because it's kind of comparative. So one really good example I heard on this podcast once is like, because we have comparative economics, like we compare things to each other. Say you have, you know, we have a tree and the tree has, you know, provides all these value points. It provides shade and shelter and protection against soil erosion and habitat and all this stuff. But humans just basically boil it down to like, no, that's wood. Let's say that's 10 grand of wood. <laughs> and then we go, well, if there happens to be 50 grand of gold buried underneath that tree, well, we'll, we'll dig up the tree, we'll kill it to get to the 50 grand worth of gold. But golden trees have nothing in, like, they're not 
comparable at all, but we've, because we put a, a monetary value on it, suddenly they become comparative, and there's negative externalities then. We'll kill the tree to get to the gold. And this, I think, is one of the big issues of tokenization because you're basically putting comparative values on each, uh, on each thing. So, you know, Bitcoin's worth X and, and Ethereum's worth, worth X, and they're, they're comparative to each other. So, yeah, common zoned automation. So, this is how we get over this fear of like our future of automation and joblessness is basically if you have it owned by the commons, then it's not owned by anyone to exploit. The benefit goes to everyone. The automation could basically it still generates wealth because it's still adding value, it's still doing something, but the value would then be shared to everyone equally or everyone within that community. It depends how you set it up. And so you could, you could do this with like still a market-based mechanism. So you could actually say like, hey, well, we'll give you a profit incentive to create this automation, you know, whether that's a script that does something or AI or robotics, like anything, any piece of automation. And we'll give you a profit incentive to create it, but then over time, a larger percentage of that profit share goes back to the commons rather than to you. So there's still an incentive for you to do it, and, but the cool thing about this as well is it kind of like you can get to the point where because you're not trying to extract any extra value on top of it, you're just it's owned by the commons, so it doesn't really have to generate profits. <laughs> so then you could you could over time, if you get to this to a kind of efficient level, you could undercut anyone else who is doing the typical capitalist, I own this automation, I'm gonna charge X. And you could undercut them and then they'll end up having to use your automation. And so the cool thing about that is you kind of like, you know. This idea of like, you know, the typical Marxist idea of scenes as a means of production, this is like a way of actually creating the means of, of production of automation and having it owned by everyone so that there is an incentive for everyone to automate everything in society because it's, the wealth is shared to everyone else equally. And this, the startup scene is it's people doing incremental <laughs> sell it off to a bigger corporate. <laughs> I, I've been in the startup scene for like 15, 16 years. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> and But the problem is then, how do you build like these kind of grand visionary projects that aren't really predicated on the idea of return or trying to generate profits or trying to like sell off to someone? Like, how do you fund that? <laughs> because the only reason people fund something or you invest into something is if they want a return on it. That's the only reason ICOs work even, you know, people want a 100x return. That's the only reason why VC and investors are out there. It's, it's people with a load of money who want to make a load more money off of that. So how do we scale crowdfunding things that aren't just like consumerist Kickstarter Thanks. <laughs> Google's the biggest threat, I guess. If they can nail general purpose AI, you just throw at any problem, they'll control everything. Yeah, well, so intellectual property rights, like, pro property rights are a big issue as well. Like, like yeah. The, we don't have new ideas anymore. No, you can still do startups, but see, the, the issue becomes, see, capitalism's great at producing a lot of wealth, but it's also great at producing a lot of poverty. It, it goes to both extremes. It doesn't really share it very well. Like you look at, say, the Atlassian guys. So same thing. The Atlassian guys, they, you know, they founded the company off 20 grand worth of credit card debt, and you know, oh, they, they risked it. They should get the reward. But now they're worth billions of dollars, and Scott bought a hundred million dollar mansion. Like, what the f man? You can't be doing that while also saying, oh, we're going to pledge one percent to charity. Like, it's so hypocritical. But wouldn't it be great if we had a collective in insight in this? So things like. Uh, uh, philanthropy and capitalism. Like, you know, you've got these massive philanthropists giving away billions of dollars. It's like, yeah, that's cool, but like, why they get to then decide who gets the money and where it goes, and, and they, they're control it's a controlling aspect. It's not, the ideal thing would be to just give, the, give their wealth out to everyone and just let everyone else decide what they should do with it. Where are the pitchforks? Who's selling pitchforks? Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> That was the second and final part of Nathan Water's talk, Predicting the Future of Human Needs. I'll embed the video on the website.
And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email with a question I can answer on the show. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound and fact-checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambaka Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, 7LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania, and my local station, 2RDJ, in Burwood, New South Wales. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.